0: Hear the word of God from Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, starting with chapter 1, verse 12. Now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We've done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He has anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, church. Hope you're doing well. I can't believe how cool it is outside today. It feels so good. I love it. Do you guys know something? I I, I didn't realize this until yesterday. I was hanging out with some people that we were having dinner together. These were people that uh, we started to kind of was here with us from the beginning of the church plant. This church had had its first public offering nine years ago, around this time nine years ago. Which is crazy to me. I mean, I can't believe it's already been nine years, and I can't believe it's only been nine years. It's a weird phenomenon. I don't know how that happens. It's like my son. I can't believe he's ten, and I can't believe he's only ten. Like I don't know life. I feel like I don't remember life without him. But he's only. But it's also like how did kind of ten years go by so fast? I feel that way about this church. It's been nine years, and it's been crazy to think that. I feel like I don't remember life pre-waypoint, and now I'm like, but it's only. It went by so fast. I've learned so much about myself, the church, about God over the past nine years. And one lesson that I think really jumps out at me is that ministry is messy, but God is always faithful. Ministry is messy because life is messy in this fallen world. Humans are all flawed and we all have our issues. If you don't say amen to that, it's because you don't realize how bad your issues are. saying. Relationships with humans are hard. I mean, very, very hard. And I honestly wish this wasn't the case. I wish we could say, well, we all go to church and we covenant together and we believe in Jesus. We love in Jesus. That means relationships are easy because Jesus loves us and we're good to go. Yay. I wish that was so true. But those of you who've been in church for a while, you know it's not, right? Right? Humans are hard, relationships are hard, and I, it's sometimes one of those things where it's one of the hardest things that we have to deal with. But God is faithful to those who trust in him in the mess of life. And so often his faithfulness is conveyed through and during the difficulties of the messiness. And our calling as we do life together as a local church is to cling to the faithfulness of God as you endure the messiness of life. This is what Paul is doing in our section of 2 Corinthians today. He's clinging to the faithfulness of God as he endures the painful experience of ministering to the Corinthian church. The church of Corinth is considered by many to be the most messed up church in the New Testament. That's a scholarly term. That's all the scholars said that, most messed up church. They all say it. Official. But they struggled with factions and divisions. They struggled to give away worldly ethics and values. They fell prey to self-appointed false prophets who led them to go against Paul, the very one who brought the gospel to Corinth. Paul suffered accusations, slander, insults. They would say that he's not a good speaker, or why is he having to work so hard, or um, his, he, he slums there. Look how bad he's being treated. That means God has no favor over him. And it would have been easy for Paul to take offense and to give up on the Corinthians. Maybe he spent his time and energy on a more fruitful ministry, or at least to people who didn't treat him so poorly. But he didn't, because he knew that God is faithful And therefore, he himself must be faithful to do whatever he can by God's grace to help the church be faithful. So here's the situation Paul finds himself in. He told the church in 1 Corinthians 16 that he would perhaps spend the winter in Corinth if the Lord willed. But when Paul heard reports of a false prophet, a false apostle attacking his character and authority, Paul changed his travel plans to make like a crisis visit to the church in Corinth. So he was there, but this visit was cut short by a painful confrontation in which the church failed to refute the personal attacks against Paul. So Paul left Corinth to defuse an explosive situation, and instead he wrote a letter of rebuke. Paul's enemy used his multiple changes in travel plans against him, accusing him of not having integrity, of having bad motives, of being a coward. Yet Paul's letter that he wrote proved to be rather effective. Many in the church repented and even took action after Paul's letter. The letter of Second Corinthians is actually written after this letter of rebuke. So in actuality, if we were counting his letters that he wrote, it, this would be considered Third Corinthians. Does that make sense? But the letter of rebuke didn't quite make it into canon. It was just a letter of rebuke. Paul writes Second Corinthians to convey this post-letter after the rebuking letter, to convey more of his message but when he feels compelled to defend his intentions and call to restoration. What Paul is showing here is an example for all of us that life rooted in the grace of God will display transparent integrity and even endure personal attacks for the sake of reaching and loving our brothers and sisters. Let me say that one more time. What Paul is showing in the 2 Corinthians passage with his life here is an example for all of us that life rooted in the grace of God will display transparent integrity, and even endure personal attacks for the sake of reaching and loving our brothers and sisters. Paul demonstrates faithful leadership amidst a personally painful situation for the sake of true reconciliation and restoration through the gospel. And it's not easy. And I'm sure it wasn't easy for Paul, and it's not easy for us to see that as an example. Here's the thing, in your life, someone will slander you, will say bad things about you, will have the wrong idea about you. It will happen. If it hasn't happened to you yet, it's probably because you're like five. I'm just kidding. But if you've lived life, it happens. People misunderstand what you said, or maybe you've messed up and you've done things or said things that you shouldn't have said. You will come into situations where you are attacked, your character is questioned, you are persecuted, you are slandered. Jesus said it will happen. And I kind of trust what Jesus says. It may be because you did something, it may be because you, you did nothing. It happens. And for some, this hurts a lot. For some, it hurts more than others. Some of you have this crazy ability to not care what people say about you. That is not me. Some people could be like, I don't care, that person's dumb anyway. yeah. yeah. Me, on the other hand, I'm like, ow. I have this messed upness, not mess, I don't know, this, this, this weakness of mine, this, this, this thing that I have where I'm a, I'm a people pleaser. And I really care. I really do. I really care what people think about me and what they say about me. And when those situations happen, it really, really hurts. I don't know about you. Have you guys been hurt recently? Have you been hurt in the past? Maybe it's a friend of yours who you're like, how, do you, how could you think that of me? Maybe it's a brother or a sister. Maybe it's a family member. More recently, as I've gotten older and older, I'm shocked more and more of how broken and quickly, how quickly relationships fall apart. I, and it breaks my heart. And I hate it. And I care so much, and that's why this sermon is not written for you guys. Can I just be real with you? You guys can just kind of, like, go to sleep if you want. <laughs> this isn't for me. This sermon, I, as, as, as I was diving into 2 Corinthians and hearing about what was happening, and I'm like, this is, this is for me. I've walked in this I've been through swamps. And it stinks, and, and I hate it. I, I, I wish it wasn't. I wish... We were all easy. And my temptation at times when it gets difficult with relationships, when my temptation at times when it's hard or people are attacking or they don't understand each other, my temptation is to be like, forget it, it's not worth it. Right? Forget it, it's not worth it. Or maybe my temptation is to fight back. You made me feel horrible, I'll make you feel horrible. Or that's justice, right? You made me feel terrible, let's make you feel terrible. That's justice, isn't it, God. Paul demonstrates something different. Paul shows us four truths to live by that is anchored in God's faithfulness in the midst of messiness. And the first one he demonstrates living a life of integrity and godly sincerity only comes through God's grace alone. If you look at Paul's intent verses 12 through 14, it's to affirm the integrity of his character and conduct as God-honoring, because he was being slandered. His reputation was being dragged through the mud. Now here's the deal though, Paul is not just trying to recover his personal glory or reputation. He understands that if if the messenger is discredited here, then the message of the gospel that he preaches will also be discredited. Now, I'm gonna go on a complete side note really quickly here, but how true has that statement been in our culture? We've seen flawed messenger after messenger get discredited and it harms the message, doesn't it? I've spoken with so many young People, college students, postgrads who've turned away, who who say mixed statements like I hate the church, and I, I don't really know if I can do this whole Jesus thing because when I was younger, this is what happened to me. Have you guys heard that? And it hurts, and it breaks my heart. It is heartbreaking to think that those from the church and the church leaders have hurt to see them not walking with the Lord because of the actions and the sinful actions of the fault of the messenger. And really quickly, what I want us to do really quickly is how do we stop that from happening? How do we fight against that happening here? Can I just tell you the last thing I ever want to happen is 10 years from now, our youth and our kids will say, I don't know if I can walk with Jesus because of what happened at Waypoint Church. Do you hear that? That would wreck me. How do we stop that from happening? How do we prevent that from happening? I just wanna share two really quick things. Is one, we need to teach and show a gospel that shows not how great the messenger is, but how great the mercy and love of Jesus is that he saves even one like us. Can I say that again? Our message that we as messengers, and that's not me, I'm talking about we as messengers, is that the gospel is so great, is that that not we're great, not that we can put on greatness, not that we can wear the right clothes of greatness, not that we can act and look a certain way, but instead, our God is so great, so loving, so merciful, that he saves even sinners like me. And we're not perfect, but his love is so good. Number two, We need to fall deeper in love with Jesus every day. We need to be a church and a body that cares more and treasures more, treasures Jesus more than it treasures programs or numbers or appearances or material wealth or or worldly possessions, whatever it may be that we just treasure Jesus more. He's worth more than reputation, than esteem, than glory, than pleasures of the world, everything else, he's worth more. And if we fall in love with Jesus more, and if we point to a Jesus, not to ourselves as glorified expressions, but more towards Jesus as the magnificent, glorious one, then I promise you that our kids cannot say, oh, the messengers messed us up. No, they'll say, hey, they, they are messed up already. And that, that savior, that God still loves them. Maybe when I mess up, he'll love me too. Amen? You see, Paul's saying that his conscience is clear, not because he's perfect, but because he knows God's grace is so good. And that's what he boasts in. Paul's confidence is not that 100% of his motives are pure and clean. His confidence is God's grace in his life, which has allowed his motives to be clean here. This gives way to Paul's transparency. He's able to be transparent because he isn't hiding his sin and flaws. He knows God has forgiven him. Guys, everyone knows. Everyone in Corinth knows Paul as the one who persecuted the Christians. They know Paul's history. They know his baggage. He was the fiercest enemy of the gospel. His sin was laid bare. He was the most prideful guy who said, "Let's just get rid of these Christians. To the pack, let's kill them." But in turn, this openness allowed Paul, freed Paul, to be the open and honest, transparent person because his sin and past was already known and it was forgiven. He had nothing else to hide. What a concept for us. We are in a culture where we're so good at not being transparent. Or we're so good at only letting a little bit of transparency we intentionally allow in. We're like tinted windows. You know what I'm talking about? We're like heavily tinted windows. We don't want people, we want them to see a little bit in, but only with the really big attention and we can drive away really quickly so they can't see in. Right? We're, we're intentional. We control what people can see. We think we have so much to hide, and we're afraid if people knew us, they wouldn't like us. We don't want them to see us because if they think if they knew us, they might not like us. And honestly, I don't like myself sometimes. I look at my own sin and what I'm capable of, and i am be like, me? No, I can't let people know me. So we tint our windows so dark that they can't see in. Guys, the Christian life is so much more freeing than that. It's see that you don't need to hide anymore of who you are because you are loved and forgiven. And you can lead a transparent life because it just points to the greater grace of God. The more sin that was revealed, that's just more grace of God in you. And realize that the person next to you, guys, he's not a saint. He's not, he is a saint, but not because of what he did or who he is. He's a saint because of who Jesus is. And then you you try to hide, you see just if I can just cover this up, if I can just cover, wear this mask, have this much tint, and if everybody else is tinted that way, we all kind of feel okay, well, we don't really know each other, that I don't have to be known, and then I have to face the facts that I'm truly a sinner, because it scares you. Because you struggle with the idea that if you really know, can you really be loved? Even with your wife and your children and your husband and your family and your friends. You're scared to be transparent. I can tell you something. Some of the most free people that I know are the ones who is most exposed. They have nothing left to hide. They've been exposed, and it's right now the part of me that even says that, this honor part of me that grew up the way I grew up, is like, "No, no, 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 no. You do everything possible to make sure you have honor. You do everything possible to hide being exposed. But that is anti-gospel. The grace of God leads us to being able to live in transparency. And I'm not saying that this is going to happen overnight. I think this is a process. I'm not saying tomorrow I want you to stand up in front of here and tell everybody every dark, deep sin you've ever committed. But I'm saying there's a process of walking in group and in community that allows you to become more and more transparent. Because you're free. Because you know that your brother sins just as much as you and needs Jesus just as much as you. And there's a freedom that comes that the more sin that you acknowledge before God, how greater is the work of Jesus Christ. Paul's confidence in life of integrity, God has said it only came through God's grace alone and it allowed him to live a transparent life. Two, your life's conduct should not be based on circumstances but on the character of God and the truths of the gospel. In verses 15 through 22, Paul addresses his change in travel plans that led to suspicion being cast upon him. Paul is confident that he made his original plan for sincerity. His original plan was to pass through Corinth twice on his way to and from Macedonia. And this was motivated by his desire for the Corinthians to receive a double blessing. It was for their benefit. The sense here is that in providing for Paul's journey as he passed through, they would not only be giving to Paul, but also receiving the blessing of grace in their ministry to him. In verse 18, Paul does not give a circumstantial excuse for changing his plans, but rather cites the standard by which he conducts his character. But surely, as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. Well, how can they know that Paul's character aligns with God's faithfulness? He reminds them of how he faithfully preached the gospel to them. Paul, basically, the essence, is saying this. His integrity is based on God's character of faithfulness. God's faithfulness is confirmed by the gospel. The Corinthians themselves have affirmed that the gospel is true, that the gospel was faithfully proclaimed by Paul. So Paul is using a greater to lesser argument here. If he's been faithful to what's most important, that is preaching the true gospel, then you can expect that his motivation in lesser things are also sincere. He's saying to the Corinthians, you trusted me with the big and most important stuff. You trusted me with preaching the gospel to you. Shouldn't you trust then when I say God is one who's guiding my steps here? That's being true. See, what he's appealing to and his understanding to them is that his character and his integrity his motivations of life for the big and little was built on the foundation of God's character. Paul could have easily have cited circumstantial reasons for his change of plans. Right? Any one of us could have come up with something. Right? You know, I got sick. My dog needed a haircut. I don't know why I said dog needed a haircut. (laughs) Weird example. Uh, (laughs) Whatever it may be. I don't even have a dog. I don't know why they come to mind. (laughs) If you ever hear me use my dog as an excuse or something, know that I'm lying. Uh, (laughs) Because I don't have one. But um, no, it's it's, it's, literally Paul can use any circumstance. But he then said, listen, my justification is God's faithfulness. My justification is not that I need to justify It's just that, hey, I'm going to do what God's calling me to do. Do you trust my character that's trusting in God's character? I was faithful in bringing you the gospel and you trust that it's true, and you know that God is true in that, let me, I'm faithful in this too. Not on the taxes or the circumstances, it. His, his character or his justification, his conduct was based not on circumstances, but on the faithfulness of God. Is that true for us? How often is our conduct in life based on circumstances that happen to us? And we excuse it as such, am I Right? I mean, to be real about it, you know, we always, especially when I get angry, I always want to justify, it. you made me angry, Ben. He didn't make me angry, I'm using an example here. Ben's going to be like, oh no, what did I do? <laughs> ben made me angry, so Ben made me blow up and Ben made me do something. Guys, that's, be, that's your life being dictated by circumstances around you. You're operating off of your anger for what Ben did. Now, don't get me wrong, Ben might have done something terrible. But Ben doesn't have the power to make me do anything. Here's the thing: if you're rooted in the character, if your actions in life is rooted in the character and faithfulness of God, then it's not dependent on this, the, the circumstances that happen in the world around us, that toss then would be tossed around like waves in the uh, ship in the sea. But if our character and our conduct is based on the faithfulness and the character of who God is, then it sustains and stays true. He rooted his behavior and integrity on the faithfulness of God. Number three, love warn, warns of the judgment of sin and calls for repentance for the sake of restoration. In 123 through 2-4, Paul addresses his second change of travel plans and clarifies his motivation for not returning to Corinth the second time. Paul's reason for not returning in, in person after leaving in the midst of conflict was not because he was a coward or even because he was angry. He was rather motivated by Mercy. He did it to spare them. It seems that the situation was so severe that a personal confrontation could have ended in judgment. That is, Paul would have been forced to exercise forceful discipline in the situation. But that wasn't Paul's desire. He wanted to work with them for their joy so that they could be established in their faith. So instead of returning to Corinth in person, Paul wrote a letter of rebuke, believing that it would be more effective. Paul's approach to sinning believers, his sinning brothers and sisters, is very helpful for us today. And here's what he does. Here's, what, here's his approach. One, Paul's behavior and attitude were an act of mercy. He did things to spare them. Guys, if a brother or sister sins against you now, is that your first motivation? Do you want to spare them? Do you want to come to them with mercy? Often it's with anger, isn't it? If somebody sins against you, often your first instinct is lash back, fight, and anger. Two, Paul's heart was characterized by grief rather than sinful anger, and that's the one that really, really gets me. I don't know why it has that thing up there. (laughs) Hello, play. (laughs) His grief characterized by grief rather than sinful anger. And guys, that's where I would pray. I, I hope my heart gets cultivated in that way. Because I'm one of those guys that like, whoa, Jesus flipped over temple tables and he got angry too. So see, that's why I'm allowed to get angry, huh? Grief first. When Ben sins against me, I keep on using you there, Ben. Sorry, buddy. You're right there. I can't help it. When Ben sins against me, my desire should not be first. Let me smite Ben, you know? This is how I smite. This is how I smite Ben. My my desire needs to be first, my, my heart instinct needs to be first grief that Ben doesn't get the gospel. There is a miscommunication somewhere. My grief, because this is hurting the heart of God. This is disunity in the body. Grief needs to be my first instinct. And that's what happens, I think, when you're walking with with God and treasuring Christ more every day. That's what happens. Because anger comes when you feel like your rights, right? When you feel like what you deserve gets stomped on. But if you live and treasure Christ, that's not what happened. Three, Paul's goal was to restore their mutual joy. When we have a broken relationship in the body, if somebody slanders you, insults you, somebody misunderstands you, you have an issue, do you grieve, do you grieve, but then do you also, is it your goal for mutual joy or is it your goal to be vindicated? Is it your goal to be proven right? You know, I liken almost every conflict I have to more like a courtroom scenario. I've been watching way too much of Suits lately on Netflix, I, I admit that it, it just came out. I've never seen the show before, and I started watching it, and now it's like, it's like bingeable. And it's, there's all these like, like trial cases going on. It's a lawyer show. It's not, I'm not saying it's a good show. I'm not endorsing it. Whatever, please hear me. This is not. This is not Lawrence endorsing a show. This is what I liken it in my mind too. like if there's something wrong, if Ben wronged me, I like it immediately, I just play out this trial scenario. I'm like, boom, here's my evidence. Here's, here's my character witnesses. Here's everything that I did right in this situation. Oh, look at yours, weak argument. Get out of the courtroom. And then I want the judge to come down and be like, that's right, Lawrence, you're good, and smite Ben. And that's what I want, I want the smiting to happen, I want smoting to happen. I want to. I don't know. (laughs) It's not mutual joy that I crave. My my desire isn't for restoration and mutual joy. But what if it was? What if that's our operating procedure as Christians? We grieve over ones who hurt us. We 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 act as out of mercy, and our goal is mutual joy. For Paul's motive was love. His motive was love. His motive wasn't righteousness. His motive wasn't um, vindication. His motive wasn't even what our perceived concept of justice is. His motive was love. He loved his people. He loved the sinners in Corinth who slandered him, who mocked him, who made fun of him. Even after he was beaten and tortured and whipped and imprisoned. Even after he confessed his heart for them, even after he poured out his life to them, and they slattered him, and they mocked him, and they insulted him, he still said, I love them. He followed the example of somebody else that we look up to, right? He followed the example of Jesus. Even though he gave his life healing, performing miracles, and teaching, the very ones he came to reach said, crucify him. And they tortured and mocked and whipped and they nailed him upon a cross. And still, he said, with all the power and ability to stop it at any moment, he says, My motivation, my motive is love. I'll reach you. Waypoint Church, our our desire for broken relationship is not vindication, it's restoration. Number four, love forgives and restores the repentant. In verses, chapter two, verse five through 11, we see that Paul took up these issues with the Corinthians, not for personal reasons, but because the church was endangered by the opponent's self-serving leadership. It appears from what Paul writes here that the church listened to Paul's call to discipline the leader, and the man himself responded to discipline with repentance. So now Paul is calling the church to show love and extend forgiveness and to restore this person to fellowship. I love the purpose Paul gives to why they must not withhold forgiveness. Verse 11 says this, in order that Satan might not outwit us. What? What does that mean? In order that Satan might not outwit us, the new living says, so Satan will not outsmart us. I don't get that. What are you talking about here, Paul? So we need to forgive and restore this person so that Satan doesn't outsmart us. Paul is saying, don't let Satan outsmart you or outmaneuver you. Don't let him get... Have the advantage on the chessboard. Withholding forgiveness will make you susceptible to the poison of bitterness. Withholding forgiveness will destroy unity in your family, in your friends, in your church. Withholding forgiveness will alienate you from truly understanding your own forgiveness. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 4 In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold clinging to your anger and not forgiving gives the devil a foothold and allows his agenda to go forth. His agenda is disunity, bitterness, hatred, separation, and hurt. I know it isn't easy to forgive sometimes. Especially if the hurt was unwarranted. Especially if the hurt was heinous and grievous. I know it is so hard to forgive. But forgive we must. We cannot give a foothold over to the enemy. We must individually forgive. We must forgive as a church. And we must seek out restoration. I know, I'm, not, I'm saying this, and please hear me real well. I know how hard it is to forgive. When Ben said that thing to me, I'm just using his example again. When Ben attacked me, when Ben hurt me, when I did nothing but try to help Ben, when Ben turned people who I loved against me, when Ben dragged my name through the mud, when Ben spit in my face in my attempts at restoration, when all this stuff happened, guys, can I tell you, I know how hard it is to forgive. But forgiveness is not just for Ben. It's to defeat the attacks of the evil one. It's for you. Because when you don't forgive, bitterness takes root. And when you don't forgive, you get a foothold over to the devil. And when you don't forgive, you miss out truly on understanding the great forgiveness Jesus has given you. Do you see? My uh, people, you've heard me say over and over and over again that our spiritual maturity, our mission of advancing the kingdom, is a group project. You don't do it alone. You do it with others but others are sinful humans like us. So one thing is guaranteed. When you put sinful humans together, there will be issues. There will be conflict. There will be struggles. I truly believe that we show Christ the most by not, we don't show him the most by not having any conflict at all. I think we show Christ the most by how we react in love through the conflict. Does that make sense? I believe that we show Christ was not by being like, hey, look at our perfect church. We all get along all the time. Yay. Just smiling faces. You yeah, guys saw that there are video cameras here earlier. So we should be like, look how awesome we get along at Waypoint Church. You know? That's not it. That's not how we show the glory of God and how Christ works and His move the most. Not by being like fake and how good we are and how great we are. No, we show His glory and who Christ is by saying, hey, we are sinful people. We all mess up. We step on each other's toes. We rub each other the wrong way. We struggle. We have issues. But His grace is so good. His forgiveness is so amazing. His love is so incredible that we'll forgive and we'll restore. Does that make sense? We are called to be be in each other's messy lives, but rooted in God's faithfulness. Once again, the four lessons from Paul is living a life of integrity and godly sincerity only comes through God's grace alone. Your life's conduct should not be based on circumstances, but on the character of God and the truths of the gospel. Love warrants of the judgment of sin and calls for repentance for the sake of restoration. Love forgives and restores the repentant maybe live in such a manner i know maybe i don't but maybe some of you are here today and you are harboring a lot of bitterness and unforgiveness maybe some of you here today you're the one that is being unrepentant maybe you've caused somebody else a lot of hurt Can I just be honest and real with you? This is so dear to my heart right now, so near to my heart right now, where I am struggling with bitterness and hurt. And this is hard. But this message, I thank God, is for me. And I want to walk in this way. I want to be rooted in God's faithfulness. I want to know and experience His forgiveness in such a way that I, of course... Well, can't help but forgive others. I don't want to give Satan a foothold into my life. We've been given a gift by God that we can practice in our church, it's something called communion. And during communion, during this last supper, this, during this sacrament, during this means of grace, we get reminded of the work of Jesus. And but also as we partake of this sacrament, as we partake in this, we get to ask ourselves and we get to talk to God and we get to be given this means of, of, of expression of his forgiveness and love for us. So today as we enter into communion, I want four questions I want to ask of you. Number one, is there an unwillingness to forgive someone that has made your heart vulnerable to Satan's schemes? Right now in your heart? Number two, are you resisting, resisting accountability and being defensive toward anyone who is addressing sin in your life? Number three, are you being transparent? Are you willing to be open? And four, will you take an active step of faith and trust that God's grace is sufficient? And his love for you is incredible. Will you receive that today? So as we partake in communion, as we as Pastor Daniel leads us in communion, may those questions, may you ask yourself those questions and see how the Spirit speaks to you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your loving kindness. Thank God, for your faithfulness that our Our call to live a life of forgiveness and to live a life of transparency and integrity is all rooted in that. It's rooted in your character, your goodness, your faithfulness, your love, your forgiveness. So God, may we know you more, may we treasure you more so we can live in such a way. May we as a church body show that we are a bunch of imperfect people who know an incredible perfect Savior. And as you walk us through conflict, will you show us how to do this with grace and love and forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
2: Amen. uh... Can you hear me? All right, sorry, this is supposed to be a somber moment, and I kind of slowed it down. But when Paul, the only, in all the New Testament letters, the only time it gives us any instruction on partaking of the Lord's Supper... It starts the phrase, the section with this. In the following directions, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. And Paul goes on and talks about how they're, they're not doing it well. This is the church in Corinth, the church we've been learning about today. And Paul comes to them and says, this is a family meal. And at Waypoint, we, we practice communion, the Lord's Supper, twice a month. We do it the first Sunday and the third Sunday. And the first Sunday, we always try to take time to reflect and, and confess our sins to God and accept his forgiveness. The third Sunday, we go back and forth. Sometimes we focus more on the, just remembering what Christ did for us. And other times, we talk about the family meal. Because when, when Paul brings us up in 1 Corinthians 11, he's talking about the family meal. He's like, this meal was supposed to be a good thing to unite you in Christ but you've turned it into something else. And, and the sermon that Lawrence gave this morning, is, the posture of that is we want to be united in Jesus. And in that vein, I'm, I'm going to read this passage. I think it should be up on the screen. Um, it's, it's John 17. This is from the New Living Translation. This is Jesus praying for us, for his disciples at the moment, and then praying for all those who will follow him. I pray that they will, be, that they will all be one, Just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world would believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me. So that they may be one as we are one. Let's not take this statement lightly. He gave us his glory so that we could be one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. So let's make that our posture as we come to the table. And this table is for us as as followers of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, this table is for you. And today, I just want us to come and remember who we are in Christ. We are a unified body because of what he's done for us. And Paul goes on in that passage that I read earlier that starts off talking about the division and their their problems in the church. And he says, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it and remember of to me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. And in that posture, as Christ's body, I'm going to call the band up and the servers to come up, and then we're going to partake.